Here is a fun fact about the city of Jacksonville. Technically, it is the largest city in the continental United States. And while that is technically true, it's a lot more complicated than that simple statement would imply. Something many people don't realize about Jacksonville is its size. Find it on a map and you'll notice that the downtown of Jacksonville itself is not necessarily a massive undertaking, it's that the idea of Greater Jacksonville is actually massive. So when I say Greater Orlando, where I live, I'm referring to most of Orange, Seminole, and Osceola counties, even though most of those areas aren't actually technically the city of Orlando. In Jacksonville, however, the regions around the city, including the smaller towns, are actually a part of Jacksonville. Jacksonville is in Duval County, which is, thanks to its relationship with the St. Johns River, technically 17% water. But back in 1968, Jacksonville did something extremely unique. They took Duval County, and they took the city of Jacksonville, and they merged them together. The city of Jacksonville began as many major cities in Florida often did, as a military fort. The area had been previously populated by a Timucua chiefdom called the Satariwa until Spanish explorers arrived to the area in the 16th century. Then the French came and opened Fort Caroline near present-day Jacksonville. The Spanish eventually took over that fort, only to lose it again in the French and Indian War right before the American Revolution to the British. Then the Brits set about forming what would become Jacksonville, the first version of the city which they named Cow Ford. Now that is because cows would cross the St. Johns River near Jacksonville, meaning they would ford the river, but even at that time, I cannot imagine anyone being particularly thrilled to live in a town called Cow Ford. Anyway, in 1821, the territory of Florida was sold to the United States due in some part to the actions of General Andrew Jackson. He served as the territorial governor for less than 12 months, but the city was named in his honor the following year after he left the office. The county in which Jacksonville resides was then named for Andrew Jackson's successor, another complicated territorial governor named William Pope Duval. He served in the role much, much longer than Jackson did from 1822 until 1834. He was actually the governor that made Tallahassee the state seat, but that's a story for another day. And so the two entities lived, as many cities and counties do, in a quasi-harmony. As Hillsborough and Tampa and Orange and Orlando, Duval and Jacksonville worked together to protect their citizens. But as the 1960s wore on, the two governments, city and county, saw that things had been going a bit sour for a while now. It started as an idea put up by local leaders with the express purpose of making the government more efficient. You see, many government officials were doing the same job, one from county and one from city, creating a redundancy. They would be overlapping and clogging up the municipal pipelines. They thought, why do we need two different people from two different systems to do basically the same job? The city was reeling from all sorts of government failings, from infrastructure troubles to regulation issues from various industries to crumbling housing and even failings in stuff as basic as everyday city services, stuff that any city government should handle at will, almost compulsory. With corruption leaking into the government and a distrust from its citizens spreading, the city worked with its locals and its leaders and came to a solution in 1965. They would no longer be two entities operating in the same space. They would become one. Here is a quick clip from a documentary that was produced at the time in 1965 by Jacksonville's Channel 4. It's called Government by Gaslight. 
This documentary had such an impact on the city that it actually swayed some people's opinion to vote in favor of the merger. Hello. What a place, isn't it? I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm always amazed when I stand back and realize what a metropolis Duval County is. It's a long step in a short time from Calford with a half a hundred souls to Duval with half a million. Now, many of our people, as you've seen, live inside municipalities. On October 1st, 1968, after a vote by its citizens, it was done, and the county of Duval and the city of Jacksonville no longer existed, so to speak. Now they were merged. According to an article from the University of North Florida, the merge changed a lot about how the city of Jacksonville functioned and how it was perceived. Quote, Historians and observers also attribute other intangible effects to consolidation, such as a more positive image and higher visibility for the city. End quote. The city also more than doubled in population, making it the largest city in Florida by population, and the size of the city grew to where it is now, quite correctly, the largest city in the continental United States. But Jacksonville has a sister city of sorts, in that they share a bizarre connection to one another. This sister city is some 900 miles away, a 13 and a half hour drive through the middle of the country. If Jacksonville is currently over 800 square miles, its sister city is 10 square miles, with a population of 18,000, to Jacksonville's estimated 900,000. That sister city is called Mattoon, Illinois, and by varying accounts, both Jacksonville and Mattoon are home to the very first iteration of a popular restaurant called Burger King. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, a tale of two Burger Kings, a story you'll have to hear to believe about how a few industrious restaurateurs and some fascinating examples of parallel thinking led to a lawsuit, a burger chain, and the invention of the Whopper. The town of Mattoon had been around for a very long time before it was given a name. It's one of those little towns in the Midwest that has loads of connections to huge historical events. The town first prospered around corn agriculture, growing in the 1850s with the addition of a railroad. Then the town was called Pegtown, another bizarre name for its prevalence of new property popping up around town, marked in the dirt by pegs. The town incorporated in 1857, and a year later, Abraham Lincoln and his opponent Stephen Douglas slept in Mattoon before their fourth presidential debate. The town was finally named Mattoon after William B. Mattoon, who was the main engineer for the town's railroad. General Ulysses S. Grant accepted his very first role in the American Civil War while in Mattoon. Jumping forward 80 years by the 1940s, the city was prospering with oil and furniture production. The town was the victim of a series of attacks by someone known as the Mad Gasser, which you'll just have to look up because it's too insane to fit into this story. But in 1952, Mattoon cemented its place in this story with the opening of a popular restaurant, The Burger King. It started out as an ice cream shop run by locals called Frigid Queen. The owners, Jean and Betty Hoots, began to expand upon the original idea and started selling popular quick meals like hamburgers. 
An article in the Illinois Times says that when the shop expanded, they wanted to give the burger shop its own name. Apparently, one of the names floated for the new burger joint was The Hot Dames, which would have been an amazing name and possibly would have saved them from the trouble down the way. But instead, to match the Frigid Queen, Betty Hoot suggested making them a pair. They'd be the Frigid Queen and the Burger King. By the end of the 50s, the name was copyrighted in the state, and for nearly a decade, they operated that way with no troubles at all, serving the good people of Mattoon, Illinois. Down in Florida, in the soon-to-be-merged town of Jacksonville, another pair of enterprising individuals were pursuing a career in fast food. They were Keith Kramer and Matthew Burns. Burns was the uncle of Kramer's wife, so yet another family business. They were inspired by who else but McDonald's. Hurry over to one of the more than 900 McDonald's, now serving family communities from coast to coast. You're probably only minutes from America's favorite carry-out restaurant. You know, McDonald's is the closest thing to home. Founded by the McDonald brothers, Maurice and Richard, in San Bernardino, California, the original McDonald's was a sensation when it opened in 1948. Not only were they whipping up delicious hamburgers at a discount price, they were also making milkshakes and malts at record speed. They would begin to franchise by the mid-50s, but that original shop was so deeply inspiring to Kramer and Burns that they opened up their own burger joint using a unique kind of cooking implement. See, a man named George Reed had created something he called Miracle Insta Machines, one for making milkshakes and one for making burgers. Kramer and Burns saw that they could imitate the McDonald brothers' speedy process. They bought the rights to the shake machine and the burger machine, the latter of which was called the Insta Broiler. That was the predecessor to what would become an iconic element of Burger King's business model to this very day. Andrew F. Smith's book, Encyclopedia of Junk Food and Fast Food, describes the Instabroiler as such, saying it, quote, cooked 12 burgers simultaneously in wire baskets so that the patties could be cooked on both sides simultaneously. 400 burgers could be turned out in an hour with one machine, end quote. Slap some sauce on that burger and pop it between buns and bang, you've got a hamburger. The plan was simple, and they began emulating the low price of the McDonald's shop, selling burgers for 18 cents each. Due to their quick turnaround, they gave themselves a clever name, Insta Burger King. It was situated east of downtown Jacksonville, halfway between the river and the beach. It opened officially in 1953. Within a year, the success with the original Insta Burger King had allowed a new opportunity for Kramer and Burns, who saw that franchising their original shop while producing more of their instant machines could lead to an expanding business. They started putting ads in the newspapers, which I found in several editions across the state in autumn of 1953. It reads, quote, Are you interested in a new business that is a proven money maker? An excellent location will return your total investment in six months. End quote. That shop would be yours, quote-unquote, owner-operator. It was a very attractive deal. Soon enough, the hook caught. Two men in Miami saw that the business model of the Insta Burger King could be extremely profitable in the bustling city. They were named James McLemore and David R. Edgerton, Jr., they didn't just open one Insta Burger King. They opened a handful in 1954, several of which are still Burger King locations to this very day. 
It was so successful in those first few months that they started changing things, slightly altering that original business model from the shop up in Jacksonville. Instead of the Instaburger machine that they were using at the original shop, McLemore and Edgerton created their own machine that they called a flame broiler. It held the same idea, cooking the patty on both sides at the same time, but it was using a flame instead. That is what is used in Burger Kings to this day. It was just such an efficient way to cook a burger. And that's not all that these two businessmen created. They didn't stop with the flame broiler. They were trying to make an iconic item, something you could grab at their shops and no others. This was a Burger King original. So for an upcharge, now selling at 37 cents, they started selling a new signature product, the Whopper. America has spoken. Now Burger King answers with the Whopper. The wall-to-wall -wall hamburger, so big that just one is a whole meal with pickles and sliced onions, fresh juicy tomatoes and crisp garden lettuce. The Burger King Whopper. What do you say to that, America? Mm. Now that's a hamburger. That's a walk. Sure. Something to be proud of. Hey, you're all right. Oh. Ah. Home of the Whopper. It would be another decade before McDonald's had their own signature burger, the Big Mac. The Whopper was first, and it was invented in Miami, Florida in 1957. The game had changed for Miami's Burger Kings. With their flashy signs, a cartoon king sitting on top, grinning with a burger in hand, they dominated the fast food market in Florida. The Whopper was hugely popular despite the price point, and all the stores became branded with a new slogan, almost a second title to the original Burger King. Now, they were home of the Whopper. Soon, the Miami branch of Burger King was overpowering even the Jacksonville branch, the original Insta-Burger King. Quote, When the Jacksonville Insta-Burger King chain had financial troubles, Edgerton and McLemore acquired the national rights to the system and they launched Burger King of Miami. End quote. By the beginning of the 1960s, the pair were pushing the store even further, spreading the stores throughout the state of Florida and beyond, pushing across state lines. They mimicked McDonald's' famous Hamburger University and opened Whopper College, training managers to create a concise brand as their company began to grow and grow. The 60s saw the rise of more and more shops like Burger King and McDonald's. Shops began to experiment with indoor dining, drive-throughs, and extensive marketing campaigns. While they hit rough patches, as most expanding companies do, the brand was growing until it was nationally recognized and eventually purchased by the Pillsbury Company in 1967. In the span of just 14 years, Instaburger King went from a tiny independent burger shack in Jacksonville, Florida, to a national brand, competing with the original burger shack, McDonald's. But in the late 60s, Burger King faced a new opponent, not the mega-popular and ever-growing behemoth of McDonald's. Rather, they were facing a much, much smaller rival, the Burger King restaurant in the town of Mattoon, Illinois. As the larger franchising corporation of Burger King began to take up more and more space across the United States, they naturally spread into states further away. By 1961, Burger King had opened their first franchise in Illinois in the city of Skokie, a good 200 miles or so from the small town of Mattoon. 
that was just the first foothold. Soon, according to Eater.com, Burger King had, quote, more than 50 Burger King restaurants operating throughout the state, end quote. Here was the problem, however. The original Burger King in Mattoon, Illinois, held the trademark to Burger King in the state of Illinois. So, in a move of frankly overpowering confidence, the Burger King of Mattoon, Illinois, sued the Burger King Corporation that had blossomed in the state of Florida. They took them to court over the trademark and they won. The court sided in favor of Mattoon's original Burger King, making it so that none of the franchised Burger Kings could open within a 20-mile radius of the original Mattoon shop, citing that distance as the estimated area that the Mattoon shop served. To this very day, no franchised Burger King exists within that protected bubble. The Mattoon BK serves its town to this very day, grilling up delicious original Illinois hamburgers for its adoring locals without competition from that most competitive of all Florida franchises. To me, the story is just an amazing coincidence, parallel thinking to the extreme, where two shops in two entirely different towns with two different business models, whole states dividing them in the height of all these regions trying to match the McDonald's phenomenon, happens to open shops with the exact same name. And while their name is the same, their legacies are entirely different. While the Miami branch led to a massive company in the fast food market internationally competing with the biggest fast food companies in the world, the Mattoon shop fed the residents of one town, a favorite burger shack out in the open space of Illinois. Their diverging narrative, only meeting each other twice in history, each leaving an impact on the other, is just, I don't know, serendipity. As for that original Jacksonville shop, however, the one who started it all, their place in the larger Burger King tale is not often recognized. I found the original shop on a cold rainy day near the end of last year, only a few miles away from the lonely statue of Ponce de Leon near the crashing waves of the Atlantic Ocean. I passed through downtown Jacksonville coming up from the south via the lovely town of Green Cove Springs. I wove through the tall buildings, past the TIAA Bank Field where the Jacksonville Jaguars play their games, and over the beautiful green metal of the Hart Bridge. Moving east toward Jack's Beach, I found the original Burger King location. It's a squat building with yellow painted along the edges of the roof. There was, or is, a store called La Favorita Grocery Store, but it is closed for the moment. I'm not sure if they're going to return. The sign by the road was blank. A piece of paper taped to the door said that they were closed because of COVID. The Commodore Point Expressway joins with the Beach Boulevard right nearby, the curving overpass creating a deep shadow over the building. It's gray and loud here, the cars of Beach Boulevard roaring in either direction toward the city or the ocean. There is no indication of the Insta Burger King story, no signpost denoting this odd remnant of this widely recognized brand. There's no plaque, no nothing. It's like it wasn't even here. It goes to show, I think, that the size of the city doesn't change your story. It does not raise you above your station. The Jacksonville Insta Burger King was such a resounding success that it launched a global brand from the heart of this massive, bustling, populous city, the largest city in the contiguous United States. And while I'm sure the store that it became was important to those who once visited in earlier times, that original Burger King is gone and has been for some time. No trace of it but a few ads and some old newspaper clippings. It took some work to even find the address. 
But in Mattoon, Illinois, where smash burgers and fries are served on the daily for the last 60 plus years, well, they're beloved by the locals. One of the proudest stories to come out of their little town. They stood up to the giant in the 60s, long before it became the real beast it would become. And they won. And they never expanded, never blew up. They remained the local burger joint with an ironically familiar name, serving the same people they've always served. Maybe they wanted more than that, but they seem to be content with what they've got. Mattoon, Illinois is their home, and Mattoon, Illinois loves their Burger King. That, for me, is a legacy to be proud of. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to the show, and I say that every week, but it seems like there are a lot more people that are brand new to this show this week, which is really wonderful and really exciting. If you haven't seen, the show was recently featured in an article in the New York Times featuring the favorite podcasts of other podcast hosts. Sarah Marshall from You're Wrong About recommended this show so go check out you're wrong about go check out that article and thank you so much to all the new followers and to sarah for giving the show some love i cannot tell you what it has done it is it's remarkable thank you all so much for listening it, it means a lot to me and if you are brand new if you are just now finding the show you don't need to go all the way back to the very first episode that was made almost three years ago back before I knew what I was doing it took a couple months to find my footing and if you want to hear those episodes please do but they are a little outdated and not as good sounding I would say <laughs> so if you want to listen to some episodes similar to this one I've had the pleasure of writing about other states in the past I've written about the villages and its connection to Arizona. I've written about our state song and its connection to Maryland. If you want to listen to those episodes, there are some links in the description below. Go check those out and thank you genuinely so much for listening. If you are new to the show and you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFM Nick. I look forward to hearing from you. I really do. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Andrew F. Smith, whose book Encyclopedia of Junk Food and Fast Food was extremely helpful in this episode. I got in touch with Andrew and asked him if he could be on the show, but he's currently swamped with teaching, which I totally understand. His research was invaluable. I wanted to give him a shout out regardless. Go check out his book. It is so, so fascinating. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. All right, next Monday, there will be a brand new episode for you. The rest of this season is full of some really amazing stories. And the finale is a two-parter about Key West, but we'll get there when we get there. I will see you next Monday with that brand new episode. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. And please, drink more water. Have a good week.